Hello, it's Friday, February the 18th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from a storm-tossed Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... We're talking about petrol prices. They're soaring as the cost of North Sea oil pushes it past $100 a barrel. Also, new research which shows climate change could put bananas and chocolate off the menu. I'm talking to one of the patrons of Fairtrade. You'll know him from The Apprentice. He's called Nick Hewer. Also, we're talking, of course, the sobering developments from Russia with Vladimir Putin overseeing major military exercises within the next 24 hours. But first, Storm Eunice is one of the worst storms in decades. I'm talking to the well-known meteorologist, John Hammond, about just how bad it's going to get. So millions of people have been told to stay at home today as one of the worst storms in decades, Storm Eunice, hits the country. The Met Office has issued a rare red weather warning, meaning there is danger to life and it covers much of southern and eastern England and also parts of Wales. Gusts of up to 92 miles an hour have been recorded on the Isle of Wight. Hundreds of schools are closed. Thousands of properties in southwest England and southwest Wales have already lost power and there's huge disruption to traffic and trains and travel. John Hammond is a meteorologist at weathertrending.com and joins me now. John, is this the worst storm you've seen? <laughs> well, as I look out over my garden and a fair amount of damage to my uh, fence panels, uh, I would uh, subjectively say it is the worst I've seen in recent years. Um, I've been in this game for 30 odd years and in that period there's probably been three or four standout storms, starting with the daddy of them all, of course, 87. Um, I don't think this one is a patch on 87 uh, in terms of the damage that was caused. I mean, there were millions of trees felled in the 87 storm. That was the Michael Fish storm, of course. Um, but the, the one good thing that that storm had going for it was that it happened overnight, and that meant that there were actually fewer fatalities than we've seen in subsequent storms. But by and large, in terms of the meteorology, in terms of the strength of the wind, the October 87 storm still stands out. But there have been storms since then. There was the Burns Day storm of uh, January 1990. Uh, they had phenomenal winds across the southeast, up to 100 miles an hour. And the St. Jude's Day storm, which was more recent, that was in 2013. And again, within southern and eastern parts of the UK, winds once more are approaching 100 miles an hour. So today's storm has been in that ballpark. In fact, on the needles on the Isle of Wight, we've had one gust recorded, recorded of 122 miles an hour, which officially is the strongest wind ever recorded across England. But I must caveat that. Uh, that recording station is on top of a, a cliff, and it's only been there since the mid-90s. It's not really representative of the sorts of winds which most of us have experienced. Typically... Through the course of the day, wind gusts have been in the range 60 to 80 miles an hour across a good swathe of southern England and south Wales. Of course, it's been higher around some exposed coastal areas. But uh, to get gusts of you know, 70 or 80 miles an hour, for example, in the London area is extremely rare. You don't get many of those to the pound. So that means that the, the red warning, I think, was justified. The wind strengths actually have been pretty much on a par with what was expected by the Met Office uh, and the timing of it too. Some places, some people across the southeast were waking up thinking, what's all the fuss about, Andrew? First thing this morning was a bit of a breeze. It didn't seem too bad, but those, uh, those winds have jumped up in the last few hours. Uh, they've peaked now, uh, and they'll start to subside as we head into the evening. But the damage has been done for 
for many. Of course, we're seeing footage on social media of uh, a lot of a lot of trees down, a lot of uh, disruption, a lot of damage. Of course, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, there was no social media. People didn't have camera phones. So in, in that respect, the, the sort of impact is somewhat skewed by modern technology. It looks like this storm is the worst one we've ever had. But of course, uh, we're seeing a lot more footage of this storm, for example, than when we saw in 1987. So it's very difficult to sort of compare one storm with another in terms of impact. And, and no doubt over the next you know, few months, there'll be numbers flying around in, in terms of insurance claims. But again, because of inflation, the amount of money involved in storm damage nowadays is far greater than it was a few decades ago. So uh, yes, this storm is, is up there as one of the worst in the last 20 or 30 years, but probably not as severe as the October 87 storm. It may sound like a silly question, but where has this storm come from? It's a really good question, and a sort of flippant remark is it's come out of thin air. And I, I say that because it hadn't formed 48 hours ago. And it's remarkable, really. It's a testament to the technology which forecasters now have. But despite the, the fact that it hadn't yet formed, most computer models were very consistent about the timing and the intensity of this storm several days prior to that. So even at the beginning of the week, the Met Office named this storm, anticipating that it would form. And of course, it subsequently has, and its track and its intensity has been pretty much spot on. The culprits, Andrew, is the jet stream, as, uh, as ever, you hear the forecasters talking about the jet stream. It's particularly powerful at the moment. And what the jet stream has the power to do is to scoop out a a vacuum at the top of the atmosphere, a sort of eddy of very low pressure, and that sucks air up from the surface. That whirlpool intensified explosively over the last 24 hours or so, which meant the winds at the surface got stronger and stronger very rapidly through last night and into first thing in the morning. It moved through very quickly. The jet stream has carried that storm eastwards, and in the wake of that, some subsiding of the wind strength. But I must say, um, but there's no sign of this weather settling down, and those computer models I was talking about were indicating further, well, potentially impactful weather through the next several days to come. I'm not saying we're going to get another main storm, but the potential is there because the jet stream is every bit as strong. So the dynamics are still there in the atmosphere for further impactful wind and rain through the week ahead. It, it's quite interesting, Andrew, that actually we've gone through a year or so with very light winds across the UK. It's been one of the calmest years on record, which has not been good news for uh, wind-powered renewable energy because those turbines, turbines have been really been dormant for much of the last year. It's been a very calm year, but um, things tend to even themselves out. And uh, certainly the jet stream has woken up now. As indicated, uh, there's no sign of the weather really calming down for, well, a week or 10 days at least. Well, that's sobering advice, and I think advice, certainly in the next 24 hours, John, is don't travel unless you have to. That's right. Um, there are further warnings around the running for wind, but also snow and ice further north across the UK. And I think as we look further into the weekend, uh, another weather system is going to come whistling in from the Atlantic, so I'm expecting further warnings to be issued. Maybe not a red warning, but uh, certainly warnings up and down the UK for a combination of ice, wind, snow and rain which i think covers most bases doesn't it but uh, fingers crossed we won't see anything quite as impactful as we've seen over the last 24 hours that's john hammond a meteorologist at weathertrending.com thanks for joining us
Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So there have been even more sobering developments from Russia as we hear President Putin will oversee major military exercises in the next 24 hours. They'll involve ballistic and cruise missile launches to test how ready nuclear armaments are. The Kremlin says the drills are fairly regular and, sis- and insists they're not an escalation of the standoff with Ukraine. But should we believe a word they're saying? Edward Lucas is, is Senior Fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis and author of Deception, Spies, Lies and How Russia Duped the West. Edward, I have to ask the question, is he duping us again, Mr Putin? Yes, he is, and he's been playing mind games with us for months uh, with this combination of military intimidation and information warfare and he's already got a lot out of it in terms of highlighting the divisions um, in the west within europe and the transatlantic alliance and even within countries and making the ukrainians feel panicky and isolated and i think this latest nuclear drill is is all part of that i am still highly skeptical that he's actually going to launch a full-scale invasion and occupation of ukraine because i don't think he's got the troops and i don't think he could withstand the pushback well that's encouraging um but we do know there was the bombing of a nursery school yesterday morning in eastern ukraine now um the the kremlin blamed ukraine it could have been russian separatists what's your what's your view edward this is classic russian fog of war tactics and we need to be really careful and really cautious not to believe anything russians say at face value i think they probably are trying to provoke the ukrainians into uh, attacking or counterattacking. we saw that in georgia in 2008 where the russians pushed the georgians till the georgians snapped and uh, launched a, an offensive against uh, against russian provocation and that gave the russians the excuse to go for the big push into georgia and so they may be trying that again and it's all about stealing the headlines and shaping uh, perceptions about what's happening and so i caution everyone including uh, my journalist colleagues like like you let's be very cautious before we jump to any conclusions about any immediate news that comes out of uh, anywhere in ukraine or russia uh, most most prime ministers presidents uh, edward have to worry about public opinion P- putin is a despot and he's an authoritarian ruler but nevertheless it does he have to worry about public opinion in russia so putin does have to worry about public opinion russia's not north korea where there's only one viewpoint and it comes from the top and everybody parrots it loyally and there are differences of, of opinion and russia's a big country and there's plenty of room for um different people to say different things even if they do so quietly and sometimes off stage and the polling that we have it shows that russians very much don't want a war against ukraine and there would be a kind of paradox if if putin said because we love ukraine so much we don't want it to join the west and whether it's de- therefore devastate it it would be a bit like that vietnam um, era thing and we had to destroy the village in order to save it so i think there is some some hes- hesitation there um for, for putin and the body bags or coffins coming back from a, a big war would be it would be a serious political problem for him um, what next? Boris Johnson is, has been talking tough today. He's been on a, a visit to an RAF base. There's not much Britain can do. Um, what can and NATO, of course, Edward has been increasing numbers of troops uh, near Russia, which of course is infuriating Putin. Are they making it worse, or are they pre- responding in the right way? 
if if Putin is bothered by having NATO um, forces on his border, he shouldn't do the things that make the countries on his border feel scared. And it's always worth remembering that the main driver for NATO expansion since the 1990s has always been the countries next to Russia are frightened of Russia. And as we see, they're frightened for good reason. It's a bit like putting a burglar alarm on your house and then your neighbor who's been menacing you and says your house is actually his house um, then complains that you've annoyed him by putting the burglar alarm up. Um, and, and, and I think we need to be very careful not to accept Russia's framing of this as if it was some kind of Western mischief. This is the result of um, sustained Russian bullying of its neighbours going over decades. I think that uh, reinforcing the NATO forces in um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland is sensible and also doing a bit more in the Black Sea is sensible. And it's worth remembering these forces are outnumbered 20 to 1 or maybe even 40 to 1 by the Russian forces on the other side of the border. So these are a defensive tripwire forces and there's no conceivable um, way in which they can be a military threat to Russia. But I do think we should be talking to Russia about arms control. This is very important. The Trump administration and before that the Bush and Obama administration let the ball drop on arms control, um, particularly pulling out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, uh, which was a Bush-era mistake. And I think that in the sort of you know, very cold, heartless world of nuclear weapons, it does make sense to talk to other countries how much you dislike them. And just finally, Edward, your instincts, your long years of observing this part of the world, you still think an all-out military conflict is not likely, but is a limited incursion, military incursion, still a possibility? Well, I mean, the, the briefings that we get from Western governments are that Putin's only got one plan, and that's to go to Kiev and go for full-scale regime change. I think that that's really unlikely for the um, reasons that I've, I've given. I think what's much more um, advantageous for Putin is just to keep this going. It's a war of nerves and a war of words, first and foremost, in which we're losing. Our nerves are fraying. Um, Russia's uh, framing of the conflict is is getting um, more more traction. So I, I think we're going to see weeks and weeks of this until by the end we're just casting around things, anything, anything we can do just to make this problem go away. And at that point, Putin will have really won a very substantial victory. Fascinating as ever. That's Edward Lucas, Senior Fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis. And he's also author of that book, Deception, Spies, Lies and How Russia Duped the West. So visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So if you're a motorist, you don't need me to tell you the cost of filling up your car has become even more expensive. New records were set on Wednesday as four court prices hit £1.48 for unleaded and £1.52 for diesel. Prices are even higher on motorways with some service stations charging closer to £1.70. Prices are soaring, oil is traded in dollars and it doesn't seem there's going to be any respite. Here to explain quite what's going on is Simon Williams, who is the RAC's fuel expert. Simon, I don't have a car, so I'm all right, Jack, but of course the price of fuel feeds into everything, doesn't it? Yes, it does, Andrew, and uh, prices are it's still going higher. They've gone higher still, unfortunately. We're nearly up to uh, 149 now for petrol and uh, over 152 for diesel. And that's added... Um, well, £2 uh, a tank has been added so far this year, which is uh, pretty shocking. And it's now costing well over £80 to fill up both uh, petrol and diesel cars. Uh, and this is all down to what's going on with global oil markets and the fact that production's out of kilter with demand as we start to emerge from the uh, COVID pandemic. 
How much of an impact is the tension between Russia and Ukraine having on prices, uh, Simon? It's having a big impact um, because, of course, that uh, causes uh, concern with oil traders and there's a fear that there could be a a disruption to supply. But, of course, the, the other part of it is that we are kind of we don't aren't producing enough oil at the moment opec the organization of petroleum exporting countries which produces 40 percent of the world's oil is trying to ramp up demand but is struggling to for various reasons and then of course you have the the tensions between russia and ukraine making things even worse and that's why oil went over a hundred dollars a barrel for the first time in over seven and a half years uh day before yesterday uh and fortunately now though it's dropped away slightly which has caused wholesale prices to come down ever so slightly so you know, now this will very much depend now on retailers and whether they will reflect things. I think very much they won't because they'll, they'll fear that there'll be more rises to come and they'll be hedging their bets and they won't adjust their prices. But obviously it will benefit them that wholesale props uh, prices drop very, very slightly. Uh, is it now, are we now seeing, uh, in your view, Simon, motorists uh, rationing how much they're buying? Are people making fewer journeys as a result of these sky-high prices? People are definitely being much more cautious. You will, I think what you will see is people won't fill to the top. Um, some people will just do that automatically. But I think now with these prices kind of at eye-watering levels, people will hesitate. And they will also question about whether you know, some of their journeys are necessary. I think you can also save quite a bit of money by just planning a little bit more when you are making a journey, try and do a couple of things at once rather than going out and making separate journeys for them. And it's potentially might actually make people question uh, whether they can use their car less in some instances. But we know for an awful lot of people through long-term research we've done for the RSC report on motoring that for eight in 10 people, they would say they would, be, they would absolutely struggle to get by without a car. Yeah. And just finally, Simon, of course, what hasn't helped too, um, the value of sterling has dropped. Uh, and so that has also forced up prices, I, I, I gather. This is very important, uh, Andrew, because um, fuel, like oil, is traded in dollars. So we need the exchange rate to be strong. And just to put this into perspective, the all-time record uh, oil price was back in 2008 when it reached $144 a barrel. Uh, but at that time, the exchange rate was two to one, two dollars to a pound. So um, the highest price drivers paid on the forecourt that year was only 120, one pound 20, um, compared to now 148. And that's because the exchange rate's down to 1.36. So it really does make a massive difference to, to the price we pay for fuel. But so you've got the price of oil and then the exchange rate, which are the two determining factors for what we end up paying on the forecourt. Well, it's bleak, isn't it? It's grim, and um, and doesn't it doesn't look like there's any uh, positive news around the corner, Simon. Uh, not at the moment, Andrew. But there's always a hope, I suppose, that um, more oil will come onto the market. Um, there is a glimmer of hope that um, the US and Iran will reach an agreement over the end of uh, sanctions around their nuclear program. Uh, and that would mean more oil coming onto the market, which would help to ease prices. Um, and you know, obviously, if the situation between Ukraine and uh, or Russia and Ukraine calms down, that would hopefully have a good positive income uh, impact for drivers too. That's Simon Williams, who's from the RAC. Thanks so much for joining us. It's time to talk sport now. Who better to talk to than Tim Nichols, who is, of course, the deputy sports editor at the Daily Mail. Uh, Tim, Formula One, big story. What's happening? 
Well, Lewis Hamilton has been talking to the media for the first time today since that controversial finish to uh, last season's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, where he famously lost the title right at the death. What happened back then was they brought the safety car out after a crash with six laps remaining. Uh, Max Verstappen, who was his, uh, Hamilton's title rival, went into the pits to change his tyres. Then the race director ordered the five cars between Lewis and Max, who is first and second. Those were the two people who could win the title. Whoever won the race was going to win the world's uh, title. Uh, he ordered those five cars to unlap themselves, setting up this final uh, lap shootout, which Verstappen won because he had these fresh tyres. Uh, then some video emerged of Red Bull seemingly, which was Verstappen's team, seemingly encouraging the race director, Michael Massey, to take that course of action. It's been a huge controversy. It completely overshadowed what was an incredible season uh, and, and, he's, and he's threatening to overshadow the, the build-up to, to this year's uh, uh, world comp title uh, fight. Which So last night, Massey was sacked, uh, which was uh, you know, unexpected, perhaps, uh, but, a, but a really important moment. Uh, that would suggest that F1 as a sport realises that they messed up that decision big time last season, which you know, caused so much controversy. And they've replaced him with two people, which is an acceptance, obviously, that the job is too big for one man. Now, Lewis Hamilton has been fairly phlegmatic about the whole thing today. Uh, there were fears that he may quit the sport altogether. And while today he's admitted he lost a bit of faith in the system, he says he's happy to see the changes made and a bit of accountability. Um, his Mercedes team boss Toto Wolff has said that they'll never really recover so he's not quite he's not being quite as circumspect as Lewis Hamilton but the, 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 the news is really that Hamilton has decided to carry on he's back for another crack for that eighth title which would be a record overtaking Michael Schumacher sets up another fascinating season which starts uh, in the middle of next month in Bahrain and, and we can finally move on to, from all of that controversy you know everyone was waiting to hear what Lewis had to say what his decision was what he was going to do He's going to fight on, he's going to drive on, and he's going to take the title fight to Max Verstappen for another year, which will be, which will be great for sports fans because it really was one of the, one of the uh, classic uh, title battles last year. And Tim, uh, Six Nations, a big weekend again this weekend. Well, uh, it's a big weekend next weekend. Uh, where they're taking a break this week, but, but uh, what has been going on this week has been there's been more... Uh, reports of, of South Africa potentially joining the Six Nations. We reported that last year, that that was something that they were looking into. Now, what's happened this week is we, we've reported in the Daily Mail that South Africa are set to join in three or four years into the Six Nations. However, subsequently, Italy have said, we have the power of veto. We are not going to go give up our space in the Six Nations without a fight. You know, so th this one is something to really keep an eye on because, you know, it's a traditional tournament. Uh, Italy have been in since two the year 2000 they've had a really rotten run uh they haven't won the game since 2015 but you know it, they are a northern hemisphere team they're a european team south africa obviously aren't they play in their own rugby championship with australia new zealand and argentina it will completely change the dynamics of world rugby and and judging by a lot of supporters rugby fans from all, all of the home nations they don't want south africa in the six nations of course the springboks are they're the world champions, Andrew. You know, there'd be a great draw and it'd be great for TV yeah. and everything else. But, but you know, it doesn't feel right to a lot of people in the game. Clive Woodward wrote very passionately in our pages this morning about how opposed he was to the idea. Um, but it will run and run. You know, the fact is the bottom line when it comes to sports so often is money. And I, I suspect that the money men 
uh, and women think that uh, South Africa it would be a bigger draw and uh, generate more cash for all the unions than Italy. So watch this space. This one is not going to go away. Good story. That's Tim Nichols, who's deputy sports editor at the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. New research has revealed climate change could put bananas and chocolate off the menu in the future. So next week, Fairtrade are launching Fairtrade Fortnite, which this year will focus on supporting farmers so they can adapt to the effects of climate change. On the line is the star of BBC's The Apprentice, Channel 4's Countdown, and of course he's a patron of Fairtrade, Nick Hewer. Nick, how worried should we be about the uh, fact we could, in perhaps a few years' time, a few decades' time, no bananas? I think if we look outside the window today, well, there's a howling gale blowing, and that's not, not, that's just not natural. It's it's climate change, you know, in progress. And the uh, the problem is that if this continues at the rate it is at the moment, then uh, a raise of uh, 2.1 degrees centigrade will render something like 90% of the land where bananas and cocoa are grown quite unusable. Now. Fair trade, the argument is that fair trade, who provides a stable return to those farmers, something like uh, 1.2 million small farmers across the world, with a stable price and a premium, a bonus, to put into their local community, that bonus will enable those farmers to change their farming practices to such an extent that they will continue, first of all, to provide themselves with a living, but secondly, they'll be able to stabilize and keep low the price for things like bananas that we enjoy so much today. So, Nick, what is Fair Trade Fortnight? It kicks off next week. What happens? What 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 are you, what are you doing? Well, we have a, a fortnight every year. We've got something like forty events, and these events are really to explain, to enforce, to um, encourage people to look at what they do in terms of you know, purchasing the sort of products that fair trade supports, and frankly, to always stick to fair trade products because it uh, not only helps the farmer in those far fun places make it, you know, give them a living, but it also keeps the price down in the face of the threat of climate change. So, um, so that's it really. It's, I've been involved with fair trade for, gosh, 10 years or so, because I think it's just the right thing to do. But secondly, today, with, the, with the climate change absolutely forging ahead, you know, it's the sensible thing is to protect the land upon which those farmers grow. It, in, fair trade encourages them um, to adapt their practices and also you know, regulates the way that they treat the land and, and provides, basically, the wherewithal to weather all that the, the climate change is, uh, is bringing about you know and and what when, if we're in a supermarket and we're looking at our bananas or yeah. our fruit you would encourage us of course to buy fair trade what difference Absolutely. does that make well i'll tell you what i bet you don't know what a bunch of bananas cost i don't nobody does i it's do i do i buy mine in, i do? buy mine in waitrose fair trade every week well done, good. But a lot of people, a lot of people don't. They just chuck it in the basket as they, as they go past. And in fact, in one supermarket, the big bell rings at the checkout if no bananas have passed through in the last five minutes. So there, there's a command to get more bananas up into the store because they've obviously run out. I mean, it's absolutely a commodity. But for that farmer 
sliding down some volcanic slippery hillside in the Caribbean, you know, in order to get his bananas cut on time down to the coast, onto the ship and away. It's a, a real, it's a real struggle. And there's very little money in it. Fair trade gives them a stable price, and as I say, gives them a premium designed to help the community. So down there, I've been down to the Caribbean, and I've seen what they do in places like St. Lucia. It's not all beaches and sunshine down there, you know. The premium will enable the farmer or the community to uh, put computers into the schools and so forth. So it, it sort of stabilizes their life. It helps the community, and it keeps the bananas all coming on those boats at a price that we can afford and actually don't know what they cost, really. Now, if the, if, if the, if the, the land goes either through fantastic storms down in the Caribbean and blows away a year's crop in a, in a couple of days as it did a few years ago. Or down in South America, if it becomes so hot and so dry that they can't grow these crops, then, you know, what's going to happen? I, I imagine one of two things. Firstly, a banana will cost you fiber, um, and the farm will be passed. And just finally, Nick, um, you said you've been associated with fair trade for a decade. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to become a patron? I just felt, really, that we all, you know, have a duty. We all want our cheap food, but we also have a duty, not just in those far-flung places, but in the UK, too, for the producer to get a fair deal. You know, the the uh, uh, supermarket business is a fierce business. It's terribly price competitive, as you well know. And sometimes the producer is absolutely crushed in order to you get market share in this country so that the shareholders are satisfied and the dividends are paid and the profits are recorded, you know. But I think we should also look to the guy that's actually producing it all around the world. You know, for instance, I think milk nowadays is a lost leader. is is produced at almost or thereabouts, sort of below cost. It's crackers. Why can't we pay people you know, a decent wage for producing what we consume. You know, I accept the economy at the moment with, you know, uh, inflation running at 5.5, you know, highest for 30 years and all the rest of it, we're having to tighten our belts and it's tough. Still, we're luckier than most in the world and we should just be able to pay a little bit more uh, to support the people who are actually producing it. That's why I joined. Great stuff. That's Nick Hugh. He's a patron of Fair Trade. And just to remind you, it's Fair Trade Fortnight starting next week. So do your bit and buy Fair Trade. So that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.